few in here, so blessings on their teachers. Father, we uh, pause for a moment before you at the close of that section of our worship this morning. And Lord, we, we want to pray that prayer that, that we want more. Lord, whether we're nine or 99, we, we, we cannot exhaust knowledge of you, experience of you. And so I just want to pray uh, for my brothers and sisters this morning and myself that, that you would answer that cry and that you would give us more a deeper revelation of your truth, a deeper revelation of who we are in your eyes, because that will transform the way we think and how we live and how we pray. So God, we just want to give over this time to you. We want to pray now as we open the scriptures that you would bring revelation and, and you would use uh, my words, but may my words not get in, way, in the way of what you might want to say to any individual. So I, I pray, Holy Spirit, come and communicate what you need to communicate this morning into our hearts. We love you. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, if you're a visitor, by the way, um, my name is Jamie, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as I just said, I'm going to be opening the scriptures for you uh, in just a moment. Um, hello as well to our online community. We love you. And, um, and before, we, before we do that, I just, I just have an announcement for you. So uh, one of the things that I, I normally do around about the end of January is I kind of give you a report on how we finished the previous year financially, and, and, and I forgot. And now it's near the end of February. But I smashed my head into a wall. All right? So I have an excuse. And, um, and that has mileage in it, I tell you. A anytime anybody has any kind of very reasonable expectation on me and I, and I forget, I'm just like, what can I say? Head injury. It's, it's great. It was working really well for me. I don't know how much longer I have it, but it's, it's working for now. So this is good. Uh, so anyway, um, <laughs> so here we are at the end of February. And, um, and let me just let you know how we did. So we finished with a, a, a little bit of a red ink, but, uh, but not an enormous amount. So we finished uh, with about 35,000, I think it was, uh, in, the, in the red, which sounds like a lot of, of money, but compared to our, our budget, it isn't a massive amount. Um, and I know that, that red ink is never great news, uh, but let me just say this, and this is something you, you maybe wouldn't know, is that at the end of November, we were 190,000 in the red. So that's a huge gap that we closed. So praise the Lord, and, and thank you so much for your generosity as we gave and, uh, and, and tried to finish the year well, and I think we really did. So it, interestingly, the year before, we finished in the black to about 30,000, so we just kind of lost our gains there, but that's okay. Um, and uh, some of you who, who, who pay attention to the finances know we still do have uh, a little bit of debt we're carrying from the COVID years, and and, and we haven't been able to eliminate that yet, uh, but your board of elders are discussing that because we're a couple of years past that. Now, we're discussing ways in which we can do that, and so we don't need to talk about that this morning, but at our AGM, if you have questions about that or you'd like to uh, hear a little bit more about where we're at financially, uh, we can do that. That's coming up in April. So uh, anyway, uh, thank you for your grace to me for forgetting to do that. 
All right. Um, I want to start this morning. Uh, we're going to be into 2 Corinthians, of course. But how I actually want to start is I want to read uh, Psalm 116 to you. And I'm going to ask you to sort of lean in and try to really capture and understand what it is the psalmist is saying. And I'll make a few comments along the way, particularly in the first uh, couple of verses. So this is what the psalmist says, and it should be on the screen for you uh, behind me. I love the Lord, he says, because he has heard my voice and my supplications. So the psalmist is saying, I love God because he listens to my prayers. He hears my prayers. Uh, Verse 2, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Because God has been faithful in answering my prayers, for the rest of my life I'm going to continue to pray because he's given me evidence that he's faithful and, and trustworthy. That's sort of what's coming through here. I won't comment on every verse, I promise. Um, The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol, Sheol was kind of like the Hebrew understanding of like the underworld. The pangs of Sheol laid a hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh Lord, I pray, save my life. Verse five, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord protects the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. So this is testimony of the way in which God answered the psalmist's prayer and brought him out of a place of where death was encompassing him and and actually saved him. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And then he says this in verse 10, and I want you to try to remember this and pop it on a shelf because we'll come back to it. I kept my faith even when I said, I'm greatly afflicted. So when I was suffering, I still believed and I kept my faith is what he says. I said in my consternation, everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of my salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Um, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And uh, actually, Luke, I think we'll just end it there. I'm not going to read the rest. That's, That's enough for us. Psalm 116. If I was to say to you... um. I know if I did this in England, most people would get this, and I'm pretty sure most of you will as well. Uh, But but if I was to say to you, to be or not to be, there you go. I'm pretty sure most of you in the room, maybe even every single one of you in the room, would know who I was quoting, at least least who wrote that. So so who wrote that? Shakespeare, Shakespeare, of course. Well done. Um, Yeah, exactly. So it's the most quotable Shakespearean line in history. Most people know that, uh, even people that haven't studied Shakespeare very well. I wonder, though, if we were to try to dig down a little bit more, I wonder how many of you could tell me what play that was from. Who said that? Hamlet. Yes, exactly. It's from Hamlet. And and probably less of you probably knew that, but some of you obviously knew it was from Hamlet. Now, I wonder how many of you, and I'm not going to ask you to answer this one, but I wonder how many of you would be able to then put context to that word that Hamlet spoke. It was actually a soliloquy that that Hamlet was speaking. If you don't know what that is, it's kind of like a monologue except instead of a monologue to people, a soliloquy is like um, you're speaking it to yourself. You're speaking out your own thoughts out loud to yourself. That's what, the, that's what Hamlet was doing. And I wonder how many of you would know the context. Well, here's the context. 
Hamlet was, was thinking about life and death, and, and when it comes to death, particularly suicide, actually. It's quite a dark uh, soliloquy that he was, he was uh, sharing. And he was thinking about life and death, and so to be or not to be is another way of saying to live or not to live. Because Hamlet was reflecting on the pain of life and wondering, would death be better for me because it's so miserable, life is. But I don't really know what's after life, so that could be worse, and so I'm not really sure. So is it life or death, to be or not to be? And he was kind of wrestling with that. However much you know about the quote, the fact that the majority of you in the room knew at least who wrote it helps me make the following point. In the last part of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, which we're about to read, the Apostle Paul quotes a few words from Psalm 116 that we just read, okay? And the idea is that his audience, the Corinthians, at least some of them, the Jewish background ones, probably not the Gentiles, and Paul himself would immediately know, just like you did when I said to be or not to be, you're like, oh, that's Shakespeare, would immediately know, oh, that's Psalm 116. Now, probably most of us, 21st century Westerners would read that and would not pick that out unless there's an asterisk in your Bible and at the bottom it says Psalm 116. Most of us wouldn't be able to pick that out. We wouldn't recognize it. But, but people in, in, in Paul's time, Jews absolutely would because they grew up reciting the Psalms in synagogue school and all of that. They absolutely would have got it. And he quotes not, not, not just a tiny little bit, but all of the context of Psalm 116 would have come flooding into that moment when they read it, in the same way that if you were a student of Shakespeare, you'd also be like, Shakespeare, Hamlet, oh, Hamlet's soliloquy, oh, he was reflecting on life and death, that kind of thing, right? So all of that context would come and you would immediately understand what Paul was getting at, but it's sort of lost on us um, in, in the 21st century. So, so let's read. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 to 18, it says this. But just as we have this same spirit of faith that is in accordance with the scripture, I believed and so I spoke. There's the quote. Just a few words. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise, will, uh, raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, so we don't lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look at not what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. God's word to us today. So, Paul quotes Psalm 116 there. In fact, he doesn't even quote a whole verse. It's from verse 10, but it's actually only the first half of verse 10. So he, did, he, he barely quotes any of it at all, just a few words. And in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is the Bible I use and read and study and preach from and so on, um, it, it's, not a, it's not a direct quote, actually, in terms of the words. What the psalmist said in Psalm 116 is, I kept my faith even when I said, and Paul says, I believed and so I spoke. Well, that's not a direct quote, but the point comes across. 
I kept faith, Psalm 116, I believed, Apostle Paul. Similar idea, we, we get what they're saying. I said, Psalm 116, I spoke, Apostle Paul. Again, same idea. The reason it's not a word-for-word quote is because, of course, Psalm 116 was written in Hebrew, and then the Hebrew was translated into Greek of the New Testament, and then the Greek was translated into English, and sometimes when you go through three languages like that, the words don't quite fit, but, but the idea is absolutely the same. So Paul mentions just a few words from verse 10 of Psalm 116, and the whole context of the psalm would have flooded into the minds and the consciousness of at least the Jewish background readers. The Gentiles probably needed explaining to them. And so for Paul, um, he, he has talked a lot about suffering. We've talked about that as we've studied 2 Corinthians together, how Paul keeps talking about his suffering over and again, it seems, almost in every chapter. And the Corinthians have used it as a way of saying, Paul suffers so much. Maybe he's not a good apostle after all. Shouldn't an apostle be victorious and be winning at life? Paul is always suffering. There must be something wrong. Maybe he's under the judgment of God. We're not sure he should be our pastor anymore. And Paul's defending his apostleship. And so the psalmist in Psalm 116 is also talking about suffering. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol. It's almost like it came up from the underworld. and was like grabbing his feet. The pangs of Sheol were laid hold of me. Paul has also chased, been chased by the traps of death. In chapter one, he said, we despaired of life itself. We suffered so much. So Paul knows what it's like to fear death. You imagine him feeling the dangers of the underworld whipping around him in those moments, just like the psalmist felt. So what Paul is doing, he's he's identifying with the experience of the psalmist. He's saying, when I read Psalm 116, I see myself in that. Like, I'm experiencing the same. I get what he's saying. That beautiful poetry is speaking to me in this moment. That, I think, is what Paul is experiencing. And he's identifying with him. But down in those depths... Yahweh, Israel's God, came to the rescue of the psalmist. The God that Paul now knew in Christ had himself gone down into those same depths and brought up new life in the resurrection and saved Paul and saved you and saved me. So Paul was seeing his own life experience in the life experience of the psalmist, whose psalm he knew so well, And he can quote just half a verse and bring all of that context with him. So to that half a verse, the psalmist kept faith, and so he spoke. He he believed and seen and experienced God would answer prayers, and so he had faith that God would answer prayers again, so he kept speaking to God in prayer. And so for Paul, he remains faithful, he believes, and so he also speaks in prayer. Paul believes God will raise him also with Jesus. And then he says, yes, and all this praying I'm doing, by the way, Corinthians, I think there's maybe a little edge from Paul. I don't know, we'll have to ask him. Maybe there's no edge. He was pretty holy, so maybe not. Um, But I imagine there might be a little of edge. Just so you know, Corinthians, all this praying that I'm doing and all this speaking that I'm doing, it's for your benefit. You who keep accusing me of being a, a, a terrible apostle, Because when I do it, it actually reaches more people, including yourselves, and actually results in thanksgiving to God. 
Because the more people that respond to my prayers and turn to Jesus, the more people end up thanking God. And so can you see the fruit of all this suffering that you keep throwing my way? So he's seeing his own life against the backdrop of the psalmist in 116, and he's now using part of that to appeal to the Corinthians that his suffering shouldn't be seen as failure, but actually the whole experience should be seen as a turning to praise and thanksgiving and fruit resulting in in more people praising and thanking God. So again, don't use my suffering against me, and I think there's a subtext that says, by the way, If you Corinthians are going to take a crack at me for my suffering, you need to also take a crack at the psalmist. Are you prepared to do that? So Paul is defending his apostleship. And that's why, if you remember in January, I spent so much time with you talking about context, talking about the number of letters he was sending back and forth and and all of those visits, because this was was needed context to say, why is Paul so obsessed with defending himself? Is he insecure? Like, what's wrong with Paul? Well, you, you kind of understand when we understand the context. The second part of our passage today, then, has Paul returning to the phrase, we do not lose heart. He said that before and he says it again, even though we suffer and even though the world is hard and even though ministry is hard, especially to you guys, we don't lose heart nevertheless. Partly because we don't lose it because of what he's just said about believing that God will raise him from the dead, but partly also because what Paul starts to do is he starts now to reflect on his own suffering using the lenses of God's eternality the eternal reality. And he starts by saying, even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature has been renewed day by day. Stop and think about that verse for a moment. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? It's a pretty incredible verse. So let's dig into it. Our outer nature is wasting away. That is just truth. That's just reality. That is just something that, that, that not any of us can escape. It's just this inescapable how things are. No one on planet Earth can ever escape the passage of time. Like, I know this is going to sound depressing, but you know we all die, right? All of us die, and all of us waste away, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. As, as humans, we age, and our skin becomes more wrinkly, and our organs don't work as well as they used to, and our hair loses its color, and some of it begins to fall out. And thanks, Jamie, this is so depressing. (laughs) But it's true. None of us can escape the fact that through time, we are moving towards towards death. We're all going to die. And humans have done a lot to extend life, right, with medical advances, things that, you know, a few decades ago would have killed us. Now we can have life-saving surgery and, and live longer and, and nutrition and exercise and understanding that. And so we've been able to extend our life expectancy, but really, you know, back in, you know, hundreds of years ago, it was maybe 40 or something. And now it's maybe, what, it's 80? I don't even know what the life expectancy is anymore. Um, so we can extend it, but you can't stop it. And people can put as much plastic on their faces as they want. You know, a nip and tuck, this and that and try to fool everybody that they're younger than they are. And that's fine, whatever, uh, no judgment, but, but you can't stop anything. You are going to waste away and, and die. You're welcome, amen. 
<laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, how depressing, Jamie. I was hoping to come to church and get some encouragement. Um, but, Paul says, our inner nature, our inner nature isn't doing the same. It's not the same. It isn't subject to the same decay that the rest of us is. It's not aging. It's not moving to a place where it will cease to exist. Isn't that incredible? What does all of this mean? Well, it means this. For the believer, for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, for you and me, and actually for everybody else on this planet, the existence that we experience is that that is underneath the um, decaying mortality that we inherited from Adam. So, our human experience, as we've received it down the generational line, goes all the way back up the generational line, all the way to the first humans, and all humans are part of that mortal fallen line that ages and dies and no one can escape it. However, the inner self, for the believer, for the Christian, for the Jesus follower, for you and for me, not actually for everybody else though, what happens is that we now live, the existence we now live is the new age already inaugurated in Jesus as the last Adam. And because you and I are in Christ and Christ is in us, what it means is there's a small part of the resurrection life of Jesus, the imperishable, immortal, perfect reality of Jesus that actually lives inside of us in the spirit as a mark, as a seal, as a deposit, as a guarantee of heaven. Amen. So even as you are wasting away and I am wasting away, there's actually a real part that's inside of you that isn't. So when you get up and you feel stiff and odd and all these kind of things, you're like, but, but in me is something that's immortal. That's an incredible thought. And that can't age. And it won't age. It doesn't affect our outer body. It promises us and marks us for heaven, but also it's something we can dynamically cooperate with and allow it to change us as we grow in Jesus and we get mature characters and we are, our, our attitudes get transformed and things that drive us get renewed and revived as the Spirit does work in us if we allow Him, if we cooperate with Him. We could actually use the image, um, Renee, you used it, from last week, the clay pot, right? The clay pot is the outer self that's wearing away and cracked and broken, and it's, it's not going to be around forever. It's going to end up being smashed or whatever. But the treasure that's inside is the real piece. While that is true internally for everybody who's turned to Jesus, that we've been marked by the Spirit, nevertheless, we have to cooperate with the Spirit. And I think there's a really sad reality where, where some people come to faith in Jesus, they make that step over the line of faith, they repent and believe, they give their life to Jesus, and they get their sort of mark and their seal, and that's good enough for them. And it's tragic. Why would that be good enough? I mean, it's wonderful, but there's so much more. We sang about that. I just want more. If there's more to be had, don't you want it? Yes. Lord, give us more. We're called to allow the Spirit to transform us, and then we become more useful to the kingdom, and we move far more into the fullness of God. And some people miss out, and they then sometimes complain that they're hungry. And it's like, well, why are you so hungry? There's a whole table full of food in front of you. 
just eat. So we all know people, nobody in this room, by the way. Uh, we all know people who are in their advanced years, and I'm not picking on people who are older. I'm only doing it because you've had more time around than younger people. Um, but we all know people who have reached sort of the latter stages of their life, and to be quite honest, you don't, they might, maybe they've been with Jesus followers for decades and decades and decades, but they don't show a lot of fruit. They're kind of bitter and angry and not really nice to be around and grumpy and complaining and all those kind of things. Like we all know and have experienced people like that. There's still such unredeemed parts of their personalities, and you're like, oh, that's so sad. But then we all know, and there's so many of you in this room, of older people who are just dripping with godliness, who are just wonderful people to be around, who just have so much incredible wisdom to share and they live out the fruits of the Spirit and they're prayerful and they're still hungry for more of God. I've had conversations with 90-some-year-olds who have said to me, Pastor, I'm just so hungry for more of Jesus. I'm like, oh my gosh, I hope when I'm in my 90s, I'm like that. Still hungry for Jesus. Yeah, you don't get to retire, by the way. You retire from your jobs, but you never retire from growing in Jesus. And, and it's just so wonderful. And so what, part of what's happened is that we all pick up wounds and we all get wounded. And people who end up in a bitter place are people who have never really allowed their wounds to become sacred wounds. And people who are godly and, and drip with godliness, they've allowed their wounds to become sacred wounds. What I mean by that is they've actually processed their hurt and their woundedness and they've processed it with Jesus and with others. And they've come out to a place where they've grown in wisdom. But people who never, never process their wounds just die bitter and angry. And it's sad. And it's really, really sad. For this slight momentary affliction says Paul, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure because we look at not what can be seen but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary but what cannot be seen is eternal. The apostle Paul we know underwent great suffering himself and he's able to look at that suffering now with an eternal perspective and come to a place and I think he's somebody who allowed his wounds to become sacred wounds and he's able to call it a slight momentary affliction when compared with what's to come. Now, we Christians have to be really, really careful with that because what can happen is we can turn that into a platitude. We can turn that into a trite statement. And so when faced with people who are suffering with almost a dismissive attitude regarding the, what the person is going through, we can say things like, well, we don't question God, or well, your faith will see you through, or well, heaven will fix you, it'll all be okay. And, and you know, that can be a really well-meaning, and often people who say those kind of things are well-meaning, and they're trying to help, and there's elements of truth in it, but it can, really, um, it can really be a gross, gross shortcut of somebody's kind of grief experience. I don't think Paul arrived at that place of saying it was a, a momentary affliction. I don't think he arrived there straight away. In fact, we know he didn't, because he said, I, I almost despaired of death itself. He went to dark places. Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was, was in a dark place. So I don't think that Paul arrived there immediately. I just think he worked through this stuff. We cannot shortcut grief and pain and suffering. We actually need to move through it. We have to be bold and walk through it. 
and we need love and care and grace and it's okay to question God and it's okay if our faith ends up in tatters at times. That's often the journey and trite statements like that can be really damaging at those points because they're not what that person needs. However, at the right time in our suffering, when we're able to move from the intensity of the pain to a place where we are able to start to ponder eternality and, and things like that and renewal and the wiping away of tears and the age to come, when we take it not as a platitude but rather as healthy reflection with others and God, meditating on the eternal weight of glory and the powerful, powerful ministry of God, we can actually come to a place of, of, of powerful kingdom exercise a transformative experience. So Paul went from the weight of his suffering to the eternal weightiness of the glory of God in the age to come and a glory beyond all measure. And this was like the pinprick of light in the dark cave where you just can't seem to see anything except this tiny little pinprick of light, I think, for Paul. Or, or, or the, the light underneath the doorway of our prison cell or whatever it is where we're able then to walk out into a broad open space where the sun once again shines on our face and the love of God and the warmth of God brings us out where he, he brings us up out of the pit and crowns us with love and compassion. Maybe then we're able to come to a place where we can start to view our own suffering as we've processed it, able to look at our own suffering and say, you know what, compared to what I know of God and all that's coming, it is actually like a, it's a momentary affliction. It was painful, but it's a momentary affliction compared with what God is gonna do in me. And then he closes by saying, we look not at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot is eternal. And this is hard for us to get our heads around, and this is why it's hard. Because what is seen is really all we know the vast majority of what we know, right? What we see and what we can touch, what we can feel, what we can taste. I mean, that's just what we experience. That's, that's what we know. The unseen realm is, is something sort of out there and we know it's there, but it's really kind of disconnected in our minds from daily life and so on. And this is where I use the phrase, and if you've been at Seven Oaks very long, you've probably heard me say this a dozen or more times from the stage, and that is that we get to kind of pull back the thin curtain that separates the earthly existence of ourselves with the heavenly realm of God. And there's certain times in the scriptures and certain times in our experience where that curtain just gets drawn aside just a little bit and we get to peer through. And we get to see and peer behind it. And there's a whole real and expansive reality that's part of a whole nother realm of existence. It's a spiritual realm. It's the realm of God. It's where angels and demons are and all of that stuff. And it's not ordinarily accessible to you and I, but we have a keen sense that that realm has a certain amount of limited interaction with us. And they cross over and intersect and that one day actually they'll be fused together in the new heavens and the new earth. But Paul is saying that other realm that you don't really know very much because you can't see it is actually even more real than the realm you live in. And in fact, it's gonna outlast your realm. What is seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal and it's going to continue on forever. 
So when we suffer, let's not shortcut our grief and pain since we run the risk then of avoiding the wisdom journey and going headlong down the bitterness path. But if we seek to arrive at a place where we can deeply consider the age to come and what is unseen, the eternal weightiness of God's glory, then we might be able to arrive at a place where we can see it as a slight momentary affliction. But it's a journey and you don't get there quick. I've been sort of applying uh, as we go along, but I, I just want to focus in on one specific application for us today. It has three parts to it. Um, I want to return to that piece about cooperating with the spirit that dwells within us and, and, and looking to be transformed and to grow and being 90 and still hungering for more of Jesus and trying to weed things out of our lives that are unhealthy. It's possible to come to faith and then receive the gift of salvation, spend the rest of our lives sitting in pews and serving now and again and trying to live as morally as we can. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. It's great to be in the community of believers. It's wonderful to serve. And it's great to try and live morally. Our world does not live morally, generally speaking. So these are good things. But we need to orient ourselves towards the activity of the Spirit in our inner selves that God wants to continue to renew and renew and renew. And I think sometimes some of us are just not greedy enough. You need to get more greedy. You've got to hunger after God. You've got to chase after Him. You've got to want more. You've got to keep pursuing. You've got to keep knocking on the doors of heaven. Like Israel or Jacob who got named Israel, you want to wrestle with God and say, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. We need to become more spiritually greedy. If every Christian in every church across the world was really, really hungering after God and his presence, I think the world would be transformed. Don't you? So how can you cooperate with the spirit more? I'm gonna just suggest three quick ways. Well, one of them is just yourself in your own devotional life. You've got to actually develop a hunger in your own walk with Jesus. You've got to spend time with him. This is nothing new. This is no new, new application you've never heard before. But you've got to hunger after him. You've got to read the scriptures and pray and, 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 and practice other disciplines. And you know what? There's a lot of disciplines. And if you don't know them, just so you know, there's a lot of books written about them. You can discover them pretty easily. Or you have pastors in this church who know a bunch about those disciplines. We can help you with it. And there's lots of different ways in which we engage with Jesus on a deeper level. There is no shortcut to that, and there's no way around that. We've got to be transformed by Jesus in our own walk with him. The second piece is we need to do it in community as well. In small groups, in prayer groups, in, in triads, whatever it looks like, encouraging each other. Just this week, I got together with my triad. Once a month, three of us, uh, my, my two guys that I'm in a triad with are in the States, and we get on, online together uh, through um, Zoom, and we do a Zoom call once a month, and we do about two hours together where we just kind of do spiritual direction together. Community is so important. And then the third and final one I just want to uh, talk to you about is is um, taking advantage of some of the things that your pastoral team are putting out there for you, which, by the way, we don't just do them randomly, right? We don't just do them because, we're, oh, this would be a fun way to spend a weekend. We actually do it prayerfully because we think it can actually help us. And so we, we had the Soul Care Conference here last year, and we're running it again in May. And, and again, we're not doing it just 
to give you something to do and to fill your time. We're doing it because we actually believe that it could be a transformative experience for you. And, and, and many people in our church experienced that transformation. People, people's lives changed when we did this last year. People got healed. There's a healing service that we do on the Friday evening. People got healed. People encountered God. They heard his voice for the first time. They encountered him more dynamically. People found freedom that they didn't have before. They experienced life change. And so uh, if you didn't get to do it, there's another opportunity for you to do it. And if you, if you want to ask me, do you think I should do it, Jamie? Yes. So don't ask me that question because you already know the answer. If you say to me, well, do you think I should do it? I don't know if it's really my thing. Yes. If you think growing in Jesus is your thing, then yes, do it. So the books are out there. Go and pick up a book. Go to the library or, or pick up one of the books we have. You can buy one out there if you want to. Read it and then sign up. In a couple of weeks, I'll, I'm going to be talking about it soon. We're going to invite people to sign up. And um, it might just change your life. Amen. I'm going to ask our team to come back up, please. And uh, we're going to sing now about how welcome.